Welcome to the Summerton Church of God Sermon Podcast, a podcast to help you find life, freedom, and purpose in Jesus Christ. Today we're going to continue to talk about the armor of God. And we go back to Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Then he says, put on the full. Everybody say full. We cannot leave off a single piece of this armor. He said, put on the full armor of God. And we've got to remember that this is armor that comes from God. These are not carnal weapons. These are spiritual weapons that are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds in our lives. The truth that we talked about last week is the truth of God. The righteousness that we're going to talk about today is the righteousness of God. The salvation that we're going to talk about in the weeks to come, it's the salvation of God. These are all the weapons of God that he gives us to be able to stand firm in the evil day. And he said, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, against his methods, against his plan, his plot to steal, to kill, and to destroy us. And then he goes on and he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Peter tells us, That our enemy is the devil who comes to steal or that our enemy is the devil who is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we know who our enemy is. It's not flesh and blood. It's the devil himself and his demons. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, he says it again, put on the full Armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, and in case you haven't gotten it, say it one more time, Paul. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. That's the piece of armor we talked about last week. If you were not here, you need to go back and get caught up. Because it was a very important message that I shared last week about the belt of truth. Now, one thing that I failed to mention about the belt of truth is that the belt that the Roman soldier wore was that piece of clothing. Even though it was the last piece of clothing that he put on, it was the first piece of armor that Paul talked about. And he was talking about it first because he was wanting us to know how important that belt of truth was. It was the belt of the soldier that held all of the other pieces of armor in place. So that his, if his belt of truth came off, everything fell apart. Now what does that say for us this morning? That if everything is not tucked into the belt of truth, everything in our life, If it's not under truth, if it's not placed under the belt of truth, if we're not wearing the belt, listen to me, every area of your life is going to fall apart. It's only the truth of God that holds everything together. And when we are living obediently to the truth, that's what holds your life together. That's what holds your marriage together. That's what holds your family together. That's what holds a church together. That's what holds a community together. And without that belt, everything falls apart. I could preach another Sunday on the belt of truth. But we talked last week about how important it is that we know the truth, that we live the truth, and that we proclaim the truth. 
But then notice the next piece of armor that he talks about. He says, stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Now, where I want to begin this morning is I want us to be clear on what biblical righteousness is. But we have to be clear about what biblical righteousness is in order to really understand what the purpose of this, this, this breastplate of righteousness is. So I, I have discovered that the best way to find out what something is, is to first of all, talk about what it's not. And, and let me tell you what the breastplate is not. It's not the breastplate of self-righteousness. Because the breastplate of self-righteousness is not going to win you any spiritual battles. Uh, let me say that one more time. The, the breastplate of self-righteousness is not going to win you or me any kind of spiritual battles. Now, we, we've already talked about it, that the devil is what? The devil is a deceiver. How does he deceive us? With lies. And can I tell you what the biggest lie is that many people in our culture are falling for today that the enemy is using to deceive them? You want to know? Okay, I got two that want to know. Do you want to know? All right, that's better. Then I'm going to tell you. Here's the biggest lie that the enemy uses to deceive people. You don't have to have a relationship with Jesus to get to heaven. All you gotta be is a good person. Just be a good person. Be a good father and husband. Be a good wife and mother. Be good parents. You know, be good children. Be, be a good citizen. Be a good boss. Be, be, be good at whoever it is that, that you are. Be good. And, and that goodness will get you to heaven because how many of you hear this in our culture today? Surely God wouldn't send a good person like that to hell. Listen to me this morning. This is so important. There's going to be a lot of good people in hell. Yes, you're looking at a preacher that still believes in hell that still believes that the Bible is very clear about hell. And listen to me, there's going to be a lot of good people in hell. But listen to me, listen to me, there's going to be a lot of bad people in heaven. I think that's worth repeating one more time. There, there's going to be a lot of good people in hell, people who have fallen for the lie of the enemy, that all I've got to do is be a good person. If somebody has a need, I'm going to give to make sure that their need is met. I, I'll even go to church three or four times a year. I'll, I'll even read my Bible. I'll, I'll do all of these good things because they're convinced by the devil that all they've got to be is good to get to heaven. But there's going to be a lot of good people in hell. And there's going to be a lot of bad people in heaven. You say, well, where do you get scripture for that, pastor? Luke chapter 18 Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 18 as he shares a parable with us. He says this. He said that Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everybody else. This is just another way of saying Pharisees. <laughs> but, he, but he said, 
They had great confidence in their own self-righteousness and scorned everyone else. And here's the parable. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. Now, now let me tell you something about Pharisees, and we'll hear more about them this morning. But Jesus said this about the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is important. He did not say, unless you have righteousness like the scribes and Pharisees. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that. He, he, he put the standard even higher because the, the, the Pharisees were very committed to the law and doing everything that the law had commanded them to do. And so you've got this Pharisee who has done everything commanded by the law. And, and, and these two men go to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. The self-righteous person prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. And then he goes on and he says, I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But then notice what Jesus said, but the tax collector. And I find it interesting that Jesus is sharing this parable in Luke 18. And then when you go to Luke chapter 19, the very first thing you read about in Luke chapter 19 is about Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and his life being transformed by Jesus. But he said the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. And instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. And notice what Jesus said, I tell you, this sinner this bad person, not the Pharisee, the good person, returned home justified. And that word justified means made righteous in the sight of God or made right in God's sight. And he said, I tell you, it was the sinner, the bad person, not the Pharisee, the good person, who returned home right before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You could, you could title this story, the, the good man who went to hell and the bad man who went to heaven. Why? It all had to do, or it had to do with where they were putting their trust as far as where their righteousness came from. And the tax collector, or, or the Pharisee here, he, he put all of his stock in what he had done, in all of his good deeds, thinking that that was going to be enough to get him to heaven, but he would end up in hell. But this tax collector knew, if I'm going to get there, I'm going to need something besides my own righteousness because I'm not a righteous person. And therefore, he put his faith and his trust in the righteousness of Christ. Listen, listen to what Isaiah 64 and 6 says. It says that all of us have become like one who is unclean. And look at this. All our righteous acts are as filthy rags. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 3. He said, there is none of us righteous. No, not one. And so if we are depending on our goodness, our righteousness alone to get us into heaven, we are deceived, church. 
Because it takes more than that to get you to heaven. And we're going to talk about what it does take to get you there. Listen, if anybody could boast about their self-righteousness and think that their self-righteousness would get them to heaven, it would have been the apostle Paul. Because listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. He said, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, that is, in their good deeds, their righteous deeds, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, Paul said, because listen to his credentials. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, what that means is he was bona fide, a bona fide Jew. Because according to the law in Leviticus chapter 12, when a Jewish person had a son, they would take that son on the eighth day to the temple in order for them to be circumcised. And so Paul said, it was not later on as an adult that I converted, no. He said, I I was a Jew from the time that I was born. And he said, and I have the mark of the covenant on my body, the mark of the covenant being circumcision, that I am in covenant with God and God in covenant with us. So he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. He said, I'm of the people of Israel. He said, you want to know who my descendants are? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That's who my descendants are. And then he says, I'm also from the tribe of Benjamin. You remember there were 12 tribes in Israel. Well, Benjamin was a very distinguished tribe. First of all, it was distinguished because the very first king of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin. And guess what his name was? Saul. Guess what Paul's name was before he got saved? Saul. He was named after the first king of Israel. Not only that, but when God was giving out portions of the promised land to each of the 12 tribes, within the boundaries of the tribe of Benjamin was the city, the holy city of Jerusalem. And then when the nation of Israel was divided, and you may remember reading about it, Jeroboam took 10 tribes in rebellion and formed a nation called the Northern Kingdom that was called Israel. But then two tribes remained loyal to God, became the Southern Kingdom called Judah under the reign of Rehoboam. And Benjamin was one of the two tribes that stayed loyal to God. So we're talking about a distinguished tribe here that Paul came from. And then he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And here's what he means by that. He means that even though I'm living here in Greek culture and everybody around me is speaking Greek, and yes, I can speak some Greek, Paul would say. He said, but if you go back home with me, you will find out that I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And when you go in my house, we don't speak Greek, we speak Hebrew. We are a Hebrew of Hebrews, he said. And then he said, in regard to the law, what was he? A Pharisee. Paul was one of those Pharisees before he met Christ. He was one of those that was depending on his works to get him into the kingdom of God, depending on his works to get him into heaven. But then notice what he says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. You see, when you go back and study early church history, you will find Saul, before he was converted and his name changed to Paul, you will find that he was persecuting the church. He was persecuting Christians. He was persecuting believers. What does that mean? He was killing them. He would drag them out of the synagogue 
and have them killed because he felt like what they were teaching and preaching went against the law, the Torah of Moses. Now listen, in his heart, Paul sincerely felt like he was right. And how many of you know that you can even be sincere about something but still be wrong? And Paul would find out later that even though he was sincere, even though he was convinced that what he was doing was right, later he found out that he was all wrong, persecuting the church. And then he says, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. In other words, he said that if you were to read the law and what the law demands and then look at my life, you would see they're one and the same. So if anybody had a right to claim self-righteousness to get into heaven, it would have been the apostle Paul. But look at what he says in verse seven. He said, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. In other words, Paul said, I have all of a sudden discovered it's not what I do that makes me righteous. It's what Christ has done and me putting faith and trust in what he has done. That's what's going to get me to the kingdom. That's what's going to get me to heaven. And then he goes on in verse 9 and he says, I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. So you need to understand that when you're under attack in the evil day, this is not the breastplate of self-righteousness. That'll get you nowhere. But what Paul was talking about when he said, I become righteous through faith in Christ, is what this breastplate is all about. It's called imputed righteousness. A theological term. And Paul describes for us what imputed righteousness is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he said, For he, God, made him Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. How many of you know this morning that Christ lived a perfect, sinless life when he was here on this earth? Right? And notice... He made him who knew no sin to be sin for who? For us, that we might become the righteousness of God. How? In Christ. In him. Now you say, well, can you explain that a little bit? Okay. Here's Jesus. His sin account is empty because he's never sinned. His righteousness account is full because that's who he is. He's righteous. When we came to Christ, our sin account was what? Full. Our righteousness account was what? Empty because our righteousness is like filthy rags. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so here's what God had Jesus do. It's amazing. Shows you how much God loves us. He took the sin that filled our sin account and put it in Jesus' sin account. 
and took the righteousness of Jesus from his account and put it in our account. Now, no, that doesn't mean that Christ was not righteous any longer. He was still God. He was still righteous. But he emptied our sin account and filled our account of righteousness. And listen, not because of who we are and not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Jesus did. And Paul said, I learned to put my faith in what Jesus did because that's where true righteousness comes from, is from the righteous one. Listen to how he says it here in Romans chapter three. He said, no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. It don't matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter how much you go to church. It doesn't matter how much money you give. It doesn't matter how many people you help when they're in times of distress. It doesn't matter what a great father or husband or wife or mom or parent or child you are. It doesn't matter. None of that gets you to heaven. The only thing that gets you to heaven is when you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul said, no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are, shows us we need a savior. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. Now, does that mean that once we get saved, we can just live any way we want to live? No, that is not what this means. It doesn't mean that we don't obey the law. It doesn't mean that we don't obey the word of God. Once we come to Christ, yes, we should have a heart that wants to do what God tells us to do, to want to follow his will, his way, and to do his work. But we just need to know that's not what makes us righteous. That's not what righteous deeds don't make you righteous. Righteous deeds doesn't make me righteous. He says, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, notice, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Folks, this is the inspired word of God talking this morning. This is not just me talking. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everybody who believes. That means it doesn't matter what you've done, righteous, unrighteous. It doesn't matter what your sin account was like when you came to Jesus. He loves you just the same and he's ready to deliver and save you just the same. He said we're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for every one of us has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely, oh, don't miss that word right there, freely. Notice, God in his grace. That means it is a gift that God has already done the work, that God has already paid the price. And now all you've got to do is by faith receive what Jesus has already done for you at the cross. It's all about his grace. And notice what he said, yet God in his grace freely. What, that, what does that mean? It means it didn't cost you anything. It didn't cost me anything, but it cost God everything. And he said, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. Oh, somebody ought to be thankful this morning for the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. But there's a third 
kind of righteousness that the Bible talks about, not just self-righteousness, which gets you nowhere, and imputed righteousness. And let me, let me just say this about imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness is this. When you come to God and you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you truly believe that he's the way, the truth, the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him. The moment you do that, God clothes you, covers you with the righteousness of Christ. Do you know what the standard is to get to heaven? Anybody want to know? In case you haven't read the Bible, perfection. Yeah, ouch. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. He said, be ye perfect, therefore, even as my Father in heaven is perfect. And do you know what the word perfect there means in, in the Greek, in the original language? It means perfect. <laughs> Without sin. Flawless. That's what it means. Let me tell you what Jesus was doing. He was raising the standard there that when you hear that, be ye perfect. Well, what's the first thing we think? Well, we've already blown it. None of us are perfect. That's the point. He wants you and I to know that apart from him, we cannot get there. But Christ is perfect. And when you are clothed in Christ, now when God the Father sees you, he doesn't see you. He sees Christ. And you are what? You are hidden in Christ. Oh, somebody needs to get a hold of this this morning. <laughs> You're hidden in Christ, which leads to this third kind of righteousness that the Bible talks about, which is practical righteousness. And let me tell you what practical righteousness is because you don't hear this preached and talked about much anymore. It's holy living. <laughs> let me say that one more time. I know I'm repeating myself a lot today, but I think I need to. Practical righteousness is holy living. And as much as this breastplate of righteousness representing the imputed righteousness of Christ, it also represents a holy life lived for the glory of God. Listen here to what Paul said in Romans 6 and 13. Now that you've come to Christ, now that you are clothed in Christ, now that you're a follower of Christ, he said, don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. That's what happened when we came to Christ. We went from death to life. And then he says, offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of what? Righteousness. Every member of your body, he says, no longer Offer those members of your body to, as instruments of, of wickedness. But now that you've been crossed over from death to life, now those same instruments, those same members of your body, offer them as instruments of righteousness to do good things for the glory of God. And then he goes on and says this in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, the whole body, every member of your body, as a what? A living sacrifice. Can I tell you something that's more difficult than dying for God? Living for him. People talk about being martyrs and dying for the faith. Well, thank God for those who chose to live for God. 
Thank God for the martyrs. Yes, thank God for the martyrs. Thank God for those who had to make a decision whether they would live or die, whether they would deny Christ or not. But more difficult than being a martyr, more difficult than dying for the faith is living for it. He said, I beseech you, be, be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He would say it like this in Romans chapter 13. The night is almost gone. Night always refers to wickedness and sin in scripture. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds. When you come to Christ, you gotta change your clothes. And he said, remove those dark deeds like dirty clothes. And now do what? Put on the shining armor of righteousness. The shining armor of right living. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to what? To see. That's why Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and they glorify your Father in heaven. You see how shiny the breastplate was? That's what God wants us to be. He wants us to shine. And nothing shines greater in a dark world than a holy life, than a life of righteousness. My goodness, because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness, just in case you're wondering, are these things good with God or not good with God? No, they're not. They're not good with God. He says, don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity or immoral living or in quarreling or in jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Live a holy life. And you say, Pastor, why is all this important? Why, why do we need to know that this is not the breastplate of self-religion or self-righteousness? But it is about imputed righteousness and practical right, righteousness. Why, why, what was the importance of the breastplate of righteousness? You need, as a believer, as a soldier in the army of God, you need a breastplate of righteousness because the devil, listen to me, is an accuser. The Bible tells us in Revelation 12 and 10, then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last, salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, that's the devil, has been thrown down to the earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. The breastplate of righteousness protects you against the accusations of the devil. Let me tell you what the, the devil does. First of all, he does this. He accuses us to God. Now listen to me. Every time he accuses us to God, he tells the truth. You say, well, I thought he was a liar and the truth wasn't in him. Well, listen, he will only tell the truth when he can benefit from it. And so when he accuses us before God, he tells the truth because, listen, we give him plenty of ammunition, don't we? 
We give him plenty of ammunition. Every time you say something that you didn't, shouldn't have said, the devil's right there before God saying, hey, hey, did you see that? Did you hear what they just said? Hey, God, did, did you just see what they just did? He's continually accusing us before God. You see it in Job chapter one, the day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And also among them was Satan. And do you know why he was there to accuse Job? But not only does he accuse us to God, he, he also accuses God to us. Now, when he accuses us to God, he tells the truth. But when he accuses God to us, he always has to tell a lie because he has no ammunition. And he has to tell us lies about God. He has to tell us things like, God doesn't love you. God doesn't want what's best for you. God is a killjoy. God doesn't want you to have any fun. God, God doesn't want you to have and enjoy any pleasure in life. He'll accuse God to you. But, but listen to me. Not only does he accuse us to God and God to us, but he, he takes it even a step further. He gets us to turn on our own selves. And, and we accuse ourselves. And then what does he use to accuse our, ourselves? Our past. He starts throwing up our past, our past sins, our past failures, our past mistakes. Listen, I don't know about you. I got a past. Anybody else here today got a past that they don't really want to talk about today? I got a past that I don't really want to talk about today. And sometimes the enemy will try to uh, turn me against myself and get me to thinking about my past failures and about my past sins and how I could never do anything great for God because of my past. But what I've had to learn how to do is I have to remind the devil of what the word of God says, like in Micah chapter seven, verse 19, where it says that he has cast all of my sins into the depths of the sea. I have to remind him of things like Isaiah 44 and 22, where he says, I've swept away your sins like a thick cloud. I have made your guilt to vanish like mist disappearing into thin air. In other words, he wants us to know our sins have been forgiven and the record has been wiped clean. Hallelujah. And again, not because of who we are, but because of who we are in, we are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Hey, but not only will he get us to turn against ourselves, he'll get others accusing us. Right? Sometimes it's truth, sometimes it's not. You go back in scripture, Nehemiah was falsely accused. David was falsely accused. Moses was falsely accused. How about this one? Jesus was falsely accused. They accused Jesus of being a drunk and a glutton and eaten with sinners. Can you imagine? That part was true. He did eat with sinners. They even accused him of being demon-possessed. Because they said he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub. That's what they crucified him for was blasphemy. It's because he was claiming to be God. And they were falsely accusing him. 
And that's how the enemy works. He'll use others to try and accuse us. But Paul tells us what we do in those kinds of situations. He said, we live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us. That is, we're going to live a holy life. And no one will find fault with our ministry. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, by the Holy Spirit within us, and by our sincere love. And I love this next passage. We faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. And notice what he said. We use the weapons of righteousness. Woo! That's why you need a breastplate of righteousness right there. He said we use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and in the left hand for defense. Amen. So that when others accuse us, what is our defense? Our defense is, you know what? You're right. I'm not perfect, but Jesus is. And I stand firm in Christ today. Hallelujah. And I declare myself righteous, not because of who I am, but because of who Jesus is. And I put my trust and my faith in him. That's why you need this breastplate of righteousness. You need to know who you are in Christ. Amen. Romans 8, 31. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God be for us, who can ever be against us? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. You see, if the evil day comes and I don't know who I am in Christ, I will not be able to stand. The enemy will be able to defeat me. But if I've got on my breastplate of righteousness and I know who I am in Christ Jesus, you go ahead with your accusations. You say whatever it is that you want to say. Hopefully the life that I live will defend me and hopefully the man that I stand in Christ Jesus will defend me. Come on, somebody. He said, who dares? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, interceding, pleading for us so that every time somebody accuses me or every time the devil tries to accuse me before God, my advocate Jesus stands up, my defense attorney Jesus stands up and says, I come to their defense today. They may not be perfect, but I am, and they are in me. Hallelujah. They're my sons. They're my daughters. Hallelujah. Go ahead, Tanya. Help me shut this thing down. And then he'll use our circumstances to accuse us. He will. If you don't believe it, ask Job. The Bible says that Job was the most righteous man on the earth at the time that he was living. That he was a man who feared God and shunned evil. Satan shows up and says, well, God, no wonder he serves you. Look how much you've blessed him. Look at all that you've given him. God, you let me take away everything you've given him. He'll curse you to your face. He won't last long. And of course we know that Job stood the test. Chapter two, now God has allowed and given permission 
And I just love that. You need to know today that before the enemy can do anything to you as a child of God, he has to go through God. He has to have God's permission. But in chapter two of Job, now he's afflicted him physically. He's got these old painful boils all over his body. And his wife comes over to him and said, Job, haven't you had enough? Why don't you just curse God and die? And then if that wasn't enough, Job had some so-called friends. None of us need friends like this. But here's what they said to Job. Job, you've had to sin somewhere, buddy. Your circumstances tell us that evidently you sinned. Your circumstances tell us that evidently you've done something that wasn't pleasing to God. And they used Job's circumstances to try to accuse him. And let me tell you something. The enemy will do the same thing for you and the same thing to you. He would say, see there, if God loved you, he wouldn't be allowing all this stuff to happen in your life. All these circumstances that are against you. And he'll use those circumstances to accuse you. You know why that's happening, don't you? The enemy will say, it's because you sinned. It's because you failed. But listen to what Paul says. Romans 8, 35, can any thing ever separate us from the love of Christ does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death does that mean that God doesn't love us no that's not what it means no despite in all these things overwhelming victory is ours through Christ. Again, not because of what we did and not because of who we are, not because of how we responded in those moments, but it's because of who Christ is. That despite all these things overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. You see, this breastplate of righteousness will protect you against the accusations of the devil. That imputed righteousness that you stand in Christ. That practical righteousness of holy living. Now listen, we know that don't, it don't matter how, how good of a holy life you live, there's still going to be some folks, right? They'll accuse you for your holiness. Because of your holiness. Oh, she's so holy. He's so holy. It's all right. But the thing that keeps us standing after our reputation has been under an attack is the righteousness of God that covers us and the righteousness of God that we live in. Would you stand with me today? Amen. Hallelujah. I just feel like I need to take a moment today and give somebody an opportunity that maybe a light has come on in your heart, in your spirit today, because you may be here and you may be thinking, you know what? I'm a good person. I've been helping people. I, 
I've been going to church, but you know what? I've never put my faith and my trust in Jesus. I was just thinking that my, my good life that I was living was going to get me to heaven, that it was going to gain me some brownie points with God. But today, I've come to the realization I can't get to heaven apart from Christ. And if you're here in this room today and you've never done that, today would be a great day for you to be clothed in the righteousness of God who is Christ Jesus. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, give me just a moment here. If you're here today and you would say, you know, pastor, I've never done that. I've never put my faith and trust in what Jesus did at the cross. It's, it's, it's always been about what I've been trying to do to get me there. But today, I want to receive Jesus. If that's you, would you lift up your hand? Wherever you are in this room, would you just lift up your hand? Bless you, honey. Bless you, honey. God bless you up here. Amen. God bless you. At least four or five hands going up today. You know the prayer. I've led you in it before. And this may be your first time here today, but I want you to pray this with me, everybody. I want you to pray it out loud, especially those of you that just raised up your hand. I want you to pray it and listen to me. Don't just repeat what I'm saying, but believe what you're saying in your heart. Believe it sincerely in your heart. Speak it with your mouth. But say this, say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he lived a perfect, sinless life. I believe that he died for my sins on the cross. I believe that he was placed in a grave. But that God raised him from the dead. And I believe that Jesus is alive today. And that he is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Now the Bible says this, and, and, and I'm going to finish praying with you here in just a moment. The Bible says this, that he intercedes. He prays. Now, for those of you that are praying this prayer today for the first time, or maybe you're renewing your relationship with God, you need to know Jesus has been praying for you. That he's been praying that this moment would take place in your life. That you would put your faith and your trust in him. And the Bible says that if you believe sincerely what I just shared with you, what you just spoke, if you believe that sincerely in your heart and, and you speak it with your mouth, you shall be saved. And he said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So say this, say this, say Jesus. Jesus. Say it again, Jesus. Jesus. Again, say Jesus. Jesus. Save me. I put my faith in you. I put my trust in you. And what you've done for me, I receive by faith. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Come on. Let's give the Lord a praise in the house today. Let's thank him for salvation today. 
Well, I hope that you were blessed and inspired by today's message. We here at Summerton Church of God believe that God is a God who still does miracles. And we're seeing it on a weekly basis. People's lives being transformed by the power of God, being saved, healed, and delivered for the glory of God. And we want you to experience for yourself. So why don't you come and be our guest one Sunday here at Summerton Church of God. I look forward to personally meeting you.